Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Vince Horn, host of Buddhist Geeks podcast, and I'm very happy today to be sitting down virtually with our guest today, Kyra Jewelingo. Kyra Jewel, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. I guess part of what occasioned uh, this connection is that you recently wrote, I don't know, is this your first book? It's the first book that I've authored. I've edited books, but yeah. Okay, awesome. So you've done some editing, but this is your first your first book. We were made for these times. Uh, Ten Lessons for Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. Uh, seems like the release of this book, is the timing is pretty dang good. <laughs> I don't know how you how you nailed that, but <laughs> these things I think they just have a way of happening. We can't plan them. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I, I I've noticed in general, like a lot of books and media seem to be. I mean, always seem to be kind of gearing toward what's happening right now. But there's certain things that pop up that seem especially relevant. Um, yeah. And I think this is a great title and great great pointer. Yeah. Um, I guess I have two two questions I wanted to start with because there's you, the person who wrote the book, and your background and your story, and then there's also the the content of the book, um, which aren't you know separate, but but they're separable. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I guess I, I wanted to start with you personally uh, before we talk about these times and what these times are exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I met you through a, a mindfulness retreat online that we were hosting and that you were teaching. Uh, through Buddhist Geeks and was really um, lucky to be able to produce, help produce the retreat kind of on the tech side of things mm. and get to meet some incredibly cool people who, many of who I've, I just heard of through colleagues but hadn't met or heard teach mm. uh, like yourself. Mm. And I was really struck in that retreat that you were part of and as well as actually all of the other ones um, that we hosted that the, this kind of, I, w- I would call it like a new generation or new crop of Dharma teachers, mindfulness teachers, meditation teachers, um, all began their kind of tradition, quote unquote, traditional Dharma talk with by sharing their social location, and that really struck me as being quite distinctly different from how mm-hmm. I, I had come up in the insight meditation world, where Dharma talks tended to be a lot more impersonal. Although per- people would share personal stories. Yeah, it wasn't like they didn't start with who they were and the different intersecting identities that were part of them. And I, I wondered if you could maybe say a little bit about that and also share whatever you'd like about about your own background that that seems relevant. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for naming that. I I think you know it's so important to acknowledge where we are coming from and and what is influencing us when we teach because um, uh, otherwise a lot of things can be hidden or or there can be subtle messages that um, we expect those listening to us to share our experience and that's often not the case and that can be really disempowering I mean that's kind of how our white supremacist culture works in terms of this is the norm and uh, anyone or any experience that deviates from that is deviant, you know, but without saying so, without saying this is, you know, one or patriarchy or hetero, you know, sexism, like, you know, if you only see uh, these models or, 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 you know, this is what a family is supposed to look like. This is how, you know, people are supposed to talk. You know, if that's if, if that's not named outright, then it gets, um, then the message implicitly is that this is what you know is expected, or this is this is just how it is, and anybody that's different is somehow wrong, or or an outsider. And so I think beginning a talk by saying, look, this is, uh, these are the streams that have flowed into my life that make up, you know, how I share the teachings. Um, It's, 
it's honest <laughs> and it's and it and it allows anyone listening to you know um maybe rest back a bit and know that okay you're acknowledging where you're coming from i can acknowledge you know where i'm coming from and and we can hold each other in our in our wonderful diversity we don't have to um you know all have had the same life experiences to really understand each other um and I think also just in general, like there can be a lot of projection. Uh, I know when I've sat retreats, you know, you kind of project all, all, all these assumptions onto uh, anyone in the teaching seat. Sure. And, um, and so hearing, you know, whatever, you know, in this retreat, all of us shared very different kinds of things about how we grew up and the kinds of experiences we had that shaped us. But just hearing like that we've suffered, that we've had, you know, difficulties, that we've had privileges, that we've had contradictions in our lives, that we've, you know, all that just helps kind of break down this barrier that can also exist um, between teacher and student or, you know, the listeners and the sharer. Um, and so that can create more intimacy, more trust, um, mm. more connection. Um, so yeah, just as far as my my own uh, social location, I uh, was born in Chicago to um, an interracial family. My mom is black from the west side of Chicago. My dad's white from uh, Houston, uh, Texas, and um, was involved in the civil rights movement. And so that was a big part of my upbringing. But a really big formative influence on me was that both of my parents had joined a Christian religious order for lay families that was really um, in quite innovative ways trying to renew the church and basically like engaged Christianity. So they, they set up development projects all over the U.S. and rural areas, urban areas, and and Native Indian reservations, um, and and also in every time zone of the world. So, hmm. um, building schools, bridges, bringing in dentists and doctors, or setting up you know with the local people helping you know just creating a town meeting where people would say what they felt they needed to have in their community, and and then helping that happen. So if it was a women's cooperative or a preschool. So that was how I grew up. So living in Chicago and then living in Kenya for four years and um, really having kind of a quasi-monastic life from birth where we had a schedule. We got up at five, had daily office every morning at six, and then the kids would eat together and the, the adults would create you know, care structures for us, and and we would do a lot of singing, and and there was a lot of sacred um, elements to our life that that I found somehow nourishing. Even you know, as a child, I remember when we left the community, the community sort of closed <laughs> when I was fourteen. I remember feeling very. Uh, bereft of this ex huge extended family that I've been a part of my whole life. And, um, and that really was kind of countercultural, like not mainstream at all in terms of what our goals were in, in life. Like people weren't trying to accumulate wealth. We, it was really living lives of service where everyone got a stipend and we lived very simply and, um, but we were we were the, we were the receivers of a great deal of generosity for our lives and for the projects that the adults were doing. So um, so it wasn't a huge leap to end up as a Buddhist nun just uh, less than ten years later after you know college and grad school and uh, or actually eleven years later I ordained when I was twenty five. Mm. But um. But the, all of those things have really shaped me, and uh, 
um, especially, you know, just really having a family that put race front and center. That was just a real kind of thread throughout my whole life was, you know, what, what is this story that we're telling ourselves about um, who belongs and who doesn't belong and who's worthy, who's not worthy of, of being respected of even being considered human. And, uh, and so, so those are some of my locations. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and it was, uh, I read that it was Plum Village that you ended up ordaining, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's community in France. Is that, yeah, is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, and I saw that you were a nun for 15 years, which yeah. is quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then had a sudden departure from, um, from that life. How long has it been since you've, um, take, taken off the robes? Uh, that was in 2015, so six years now. Okay. So it sounds like, in a way, you've had these pe- like phases, like periods mm-hmm. that are almost mm-hmm. like a like a sine wave or something, mm-hmm. or more monastic, more kind of. I don't know if in the world is the right way of putting it, but more in the world, more monastic, mm-hmm. more in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I um, yeah. I know some teachers that we've worked with have had a similar kind of past, like mm-hmm. Jack Cornfield comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and there's always, they always talk about the challenges of leaving the monastic life and, and coming into whatever the world that they enter into. Is that something that you've also found that the transition between those can be challenging? Definitely. Um, I just experienced so much, um, there was such a buffer around us in the monastery, like um you you wear the same clothes, you have the same shaved head. You really are about blending in and being a cell in a larger body. And of course, everyone also is given space and encouragement to be their unique selves and but but part of what's so comforting about that lifestyle and so supportive is that there is this um, collectivity and this um, shared uh, way of living, whether it's your dress or, you know, all the, you're all doing the same schedule, you're living by the same ethical precepts. So you have this, like, you gets extended (laughs) in terms of what you care about, what's important to you by like, you know, 400 people. And so that's like a mass that is holding you all the time. And so when you leave, it really, I I felt like I have to grow a different kind of skin (laughs) Mm. because, um, because the Sangha has been my skin, you know, the monastic community has been, you know, um, on so many levels, this, this refuge, this home, this community. And, and, you know, I left when I was 40 and, um, and I had spent my whole adult life basically there. I went there first when I was 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my whole identity. That was uh, was my friendship network. That was my livelihood. That was my, mm-hmm. um, my sense of who I was in the world and where I was going with my life. And, um, and then suddenly I had, I, you know, not suddenly. I mean, I, I really did sit with this question for two years before I left. And then I stayed in robes for another two years after I left. So it was a four-year discernment process altogether. Um, I guess I left when I was maybe 39 and I disrobed when I was 41. Anyway, don't remember all the, the ages, but um, it was a four-year discernment process. And in that time, I had to really like figure out, well, who am I, who am I if I'm not a nun? And, you know, what am I going to do? And where will I be? And um, what kind of meaning will my life have? And those were really very sometimes painful and, and 
confusing and scary questions to be uh, encountering because I was very safe and secure and uh, rooted and well-loved and well-respected. I mean, I had everything in my life as a nun in terms of like, you know, I, I, I had status. I was, I was appreciated. I did things that I respected and that I uh, was proud of. And there was no reason to leave, you know, in the, in the outer, <laughs> on the surface of things. It was like, why would you give all that up? Because it was, it was a very good life for me in so many ways. I mean, I truly loved being a nun and I loved living with the community. And I still love all of my brothers and sisters and my teacher today, then none of that has changed. But I just really knew I was being called to, to, to do something else. And, and so there was this, you know, real conflict inside of me, even before I brought it to anyone else of like, but I really want to stay, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so there was mm. really none of that security, none of that clarity, none of that kind of being held in that I could see, you know, when I was thinking uh, I need to, to move into the world. And so that's what was so difficult. And, and that's actually, I think one of what was wonderful actually to be so insecure uh, because it taught me so much about um, really taking refuge in the practice uh, I, I'm forever grateful to the Insight Meditation Society for allowing me to come there for the three-month retreats in the fall, which I did like four years in a row, either three months or six weeks. But those were so helpful in that very turbulent time of just having that long, dedicated, quiet space to just sit with this, you know, bubbling turmoil <laughs> of um, all the fear, all the anxiety, all the worries, but also all of the, like, you know, opening to, well, what, what could this be? What is this about? And, and the not knowing, you know? And so, so the insecurity allowed me to touch a deeper place of practice. It also allowed me to touch a deepening trust in myself and my own, um, like this, that our lives have a trajectory. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we don't understand why things are happening the way they are. But like what I can see looking back is that there was definitely like my future self, if you, if you use that kind of framing, was calling to me when I was a nun saying, you need to be somewhere else. Mm. And I trust that now. I can see that was really... But in the moment, I was thinking, why is this happening? Why is, you know, this very good life <laughs> falling apart? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so there were so many things that the, the free fall really um, allowed me to see and to kind of claim in myself. And, you know, just one other piece about the transition. One of the things I really feared was losing my practice outside of the monastery. And it was just, you know, what I see now was a little bit of arrogance as a nun, feeling like that, that was really the only place to do deep practice. And so what happened when I went out to teach, because that's really what I did when I stayed in robes but went outside of the monastery, um, was I just went to different lay sanghas a lot in Europe, but a little bit in Africa and around the U.S., leading retreats, days of mindfulness, you know, courses. And, um, and I found very committed lay sanghas that had been building community for decades and were very sincere and very deeply transformative places for the people who practiced with them. And I realized, um, I mean, I feel a little bit embarrassed to say now because it shows my, my arrogance and my like small mindedness, but I really, I really saw 
practice is everywhere and practice is deep everywhere. It's different, of course, than in the monastery, but it's not any less. And that's when I really understood this line from a song, a Plum Village song that says, the Sangha body is everywhere. My true home is right here. And I've been singing that song for 20 years, and it wasn't till I was traveling and um, teaching among lay sanghas that I was really like, this is true. I, I didn't didn't get it on that level. Like it's not only in the monastery. Hmm. And so that was one of the pieces that allowed me also to ease into the transition was just seeing, I'm not going to lose my practice. You know, everyone out here is practicing as best they can. And if I just stay with this, the community, stay close to people who want to live the way I do, right? you know, yeah, makes sense. Um, what you shared that the the line from the the song it reminded me also of um, a quote I think from Gempo Roshi, a Zen teacher. Um, he said, "This is the temple; it has no walls." Mm. Yeah, I can really relate. Uh, by the way, to the to the impulse and mm. the and the desire to want to live in that kind of monastic environment. I felt mm. that so strongly in my early in my early twenties. And I don't think, had I not been in a deep relationship that I really valued and didn't want to lose, mm. uh, my then partner, now wife, um, I don't, th I think I absolutely would have, would have taken that road. And I, and I mm. think I shared a lot of the same ideas, you know, that this is the mm. only place that you can really do extremely deep practice. If, mm. you, if it, if it's a, if your whole life is built around that dedicated to that. Mm. Um, and I have a lot of admiration actually for the folks that do make that choice because yeah. I think it does show in, in who they are and how they are yeah. um, that, that kind of practice. I mean, it, it definitely you, you are supported in ways that you aren't outside of the monastery. There's a buoyancy <laughs> because mm -hmm. of the collective, because of all of the, the precepts are protecting you. You're, you're, you're isolated from the world. You're living in a place that's sort of set apart. Right. And so all those things really support focusing on the practice. You don't have to worry about money. I mean, you might have to worry about it in the larger sense, everyone is collective, but you personally don't have to worry about, you know, making a salary every month. And yes. and you just practice and you study and you connect and you so so there's like the complexities of our life are simplified. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That seems like the good news and the bad news. <laughs> yeah. 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 Makes sense. Mm. Um, now there's an, there's another quote I want to share from the mm. preface of your book here that I really mm. feel it, it's a nice transition from the personal to the, to the collective levels mm. of things. You said our, our personal challenges are not disconnected from the larger challenges and disruptions our world's facing right now. Yeah. I mean, this seems so obvious on the one hand, but I, I know from experience and, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's the way that Buddhism is framed from the beginning or how it's taught in the modern world, but there is such a, a strong emphasis on personal experience and on meditation as a personal journey. I know that's, it varies a lot depending on the communities that you're in. Thich Nhat Hanh is a good example where that's probably not as, as much the case, but um I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, these times. You know, we were made for these times. How do you, how are you seeing these times that we're in now, and what are the the larger challenges that we face that collectively that that by definition are going to impact us on a personal level? Yeah. Well, sitting in the midst of Omicron right now. Right, right. We're with, right in the middle. With. Uh, with the with caring for someone right now who's sick with COVID and, um, yes. you know, people in my family have had it recently, you know, just it's everywhere. And I'm in New York, which is a hotspot. So, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of like, just the level of uncertainty and, you know, this inter, um, uh, uh, in, is it the International Panel on Climate 
IPCC, I can't think of what it stands for now. But anyway, the scientists who work on climate change are telling us we have eight years now to really figure this out before things Mm -hmm. really go off the rails. And they're already going off the rails. I mean, just look at the fires in Boulder and the extreme weather in the South. You know, it's like colder in Georgia where my dad lives than here in New York. Like, (laughs) right. And 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 last week it was 70 degrees here in the South. So it's like these extremes. So extreme. And the wind tornadoes that, you know, collapsed things in Kansas. And Mm. um, and that's just the United States. Right. But we're, we're really seeing a speeding up of unpredictability of of you know trauma is happening to the earth it's happening um you know to our society in terms of now we don't have a really functioning government where we we are speaking the same language anymore like right one whole part of our government doesn't seem to want democracy. <laughs> they want to control who, you know, they want to decide who, who becomes elected, not, not the voters, and, and doing everything to control that outcome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying either of the parties is, is uh, the answer, <laughs> but we're at this level of fracturing where um, things that, you know, sort of worked more or less for most of my life, you know, aren't working. I mean, when I, I just, you know, when I talked to my parents who are both in their eighties after January 6th last year, the, what I heard in their voices was like, you know, they had, they had so much trust in this country Mm. and they really couldn't quite, like it was just, they were glued to the TV. It was like so hard to understand this was happening in our own country. So just seeing like that generation's kind of their amount of stability that they'd had in their lives where a government that was actually trustworthy enough that this was such a shock to them. I think it was to, to so many of us, but right. on so many levels, like the fact that, you know, we can't get vaccines to people who need them around the world or that people who can get them aren't aren't taking them and and well we're just really not we're not able to take good care of ourselves in this in this crisis of this pandemic and and you know that's just it's like a fractal that's just one piece of a larger piece of breaking down Yes. Of, you know, extreme wealth inequality, um, you know, corporations really running our government and our media too. And so, you know, this, this real, you know, trust is such a fundamental piece that's off in this pandemic and in so many of I mean, the fact that I just read this yesterday that only 27% of Republicans believe Biden was fairly elected. Right. Now, a year later. And, right. um, you know, so this, this lack of trust. And, um, and so we were made for these times. You know, it was interesting. I was doing a, a, an interview with someone and they said, you know, this title it's, that's a lot of confidence. That's a lot of trust. You know, I was bringing that back to the the word trust there too. And I think, you know, just like I experienced leaving monastic life as at first this terrifying thing, but that I was really had to do. um, And and I found that I actually had, and I could access, I mean, not that everything was in me already, but I could access places and people and teachings and 
and things from within myself too that helped me to to see that I really could do that. I could go through that huge metamorphosis and and survive it. <laughs> mm. um, and you know, it, it's it's really you know up in the air what what the future holds for us as an entire species. But right. what what I think we can really see is how much we have within each one of us and between us in our connections that um, especially our contemplative um, mystical um, earth-based traditions there is so much wisdom in our collective that can support us to meet you know all these various crises that we're facing yes. and each of us you know making these internal movements in ourselves to um, one of the things I talk about in the book is resting back into the unknown. You know, if in our own lives, in our own small ways, we can cultivate the trust um, in ourselves, in the unfolding of our lives, it can support our collective to also really like lean into this moment rather than hmm, try to escape it or numb out or, um, you know, uh, burn it all down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or collapse out of, you know, complete like overwhelm or anxiety. Like, but there is, there, there are things we haven't even unearthed yet that are already within us or between us. Who knows what, what's possible and what we're capable of. Yeah. That's a very hopeful thought. Um, Going back to the, the, the to the various crises that you're naming, um, inequality, the democracy crisis that we're facing here, and that's I mean all over the world. Um, yeah. Um, the climate, the ecological crisis, you know, being one of yeah. the most dire. Um, yeah, there's pages that we could fill with with the, the things that are kind of collapsing or breaking down right now. In, in one of the circles that I, I'm connected to, sometimes it's called the sense-making community or sense-making web. Mm. There's some folks there that, that put a name to this that I kind of like. They call it the meta-crisis. You know, we're in this sort of crisis of crises. And it's something that we just aren't currently capable of, of really comprehending fully um, or, or, or even you know, knowing exactly how to respond because these things are so interconnected and they seem to all be kind of feeding each other. Um, and, and it's easy, I think, to get into like, to collapse, like you said, to go into this kind of doomer mindset. And I've been here. So that's speaking from experience of like, we, it is hopeless. We are fucked. Yeah. There's no way out of this. And yeah. like the best I can do is like, try to just take care of my own and like start prepping for the, for the collapse or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I see a lot of that and I feel, I feel that impulse in myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what you're saying is I feel so relevant to the, like, how do we actually live in these times? How do we, how do we respond to meet this moment? Even if we don't, we, there's no precedence for this. We don't even right. know. We've never been through this. That's before. right. No generation has had to face these challenges. Going back to another piece you're talking about, I, I was listening to Tristan Harris recently, who um, was one of the folks behind the Social Dilemma um, movie on Netflix uh -huh. that that started to really uncover some of the mm. the deeper problems with social media. And he was yeah. in conversation with a philosopher named Daniel Schmachtenberger. And one thing that they pointed out, which I, which I found so helpful, being a geek and also mm being someone who's interested in consciousness hmm. is, you know, that we have governments, we have culture and we have markets, you know, there's one way to look at it. Uh, and, and 
in a way, historically, what made democracy possible was the invention of the printing press, mm-hmm. of people being able to be to 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 become educated and 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 understand the issues that that are um, that they're having to vote on. You know, vote for representatives on these representing them for these issues. It's like it's a necessary piece to have a a clear understanding of what's going on. And all of the media models from the printing press up until the internet were all kind of um, broadcast models where, you know, there's just a few sources of information and everyone's getting the same information. Yeah. But with the internet, there's just been this tremendous splintering of information. Sometimes they're called echo chambers or whatever. People can go off and have a completely different view of what's happening in the world that doesn't even connect one bit with it this other group of people. Right. And then the other problem that, that Daniel uh, mentioned is that social media companies in a way have captured culture, have mm. captured governments and have captured mm. markets mm. and they're growing exponentially fast mm-hmm. and are with their algorithms, you know, that are preferencing the things that actually outrage people. Yeah. Um, are further polarizing the already fragmented divide, yeah, and making governments less capable of being able to regulate them. Mm. So you know their concern, and I think I share this concern, is that this is mm. li- like very deeply problematic signs of a collapse of yeah. democracy. Yeah. Mm. And like you, I've taken this for granted since I was yeah. born that like right. I'm going to have this stable, semi-stable environment um, yeah. where, you know, for the most part have my needs met. And mm-hmm. I know that's mm-hmm. not true for everybody who's lived in through the, you know, the last, you know, wave of semi-stable government. But mm. for, for me, it's been true. And it's it's deeply terrifying to consider that, yeah. <laughs> you know, the possibility of that breaking apart and not knowing what might replace it. Could it be? right-wing authoritarianism or mm. maybe something new will gradually emerge out of the, mm. I am an apocaloptimist, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I think there, there is that possibility to build stuff out of the collapse, but, mm. Mm. Um, but I also, I, I'm not sort of, na- I'm not a naive about that, that it's like going to be easier, whatever. So yeah. I, I really appreciate your teaching on equanimity Mm. Um, and it feels like that's so freaking needed right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about that because that's um, sure. Now you you mentioned that um, that your that uh, Thich Nhat Han uh, translates uh, equanimity upeksha as inclusiveness. Yeah, and that's something I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that because that's a really interesting and different way of, of looking at equanimity than, than the ones yeah. I've run across. Yeah. Um, so practicing both in the insight and the, the Plum Village Zen traditions, you know, how I've heard insight teachers talk about equanimity is, is this kind of a non-attachment and, um, and stability and tranquility and um, seeing you know, seeing with, with patience and, and it's, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh also names that as, as one aspect or a, a part of equanimity. And those, those um, qualities feel more receptive, like, you know, sort of more allowing, you know, what's happening and, and just um, really seeing clearly, like, but taking it all in and, and not reacting. And the piece that I feel is, is um, unique and helpful from, from this nuance that, that Thai has offered on the meaning of equanimity as inclusiveness is it's more active. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, not just allowing, you know, kind of accepting um, uh, taking in the things that are happening versus, you know, resisting them. But it's also going out and <laughs> opening to and bringing in and welcoming. Or So, mm. so um, you know, equanimity is uh, 
really uh, a, a, a vastness of heart of being able to see there's a lot more happening in any given situation than what it looks like on the surface. And to include the possibility that we don't see everything <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat, to include how other people or other groups might see what we see differently, to include um, the possibility that we don't perceive something correctly, uh, and to include that which is unfamiliar to us or is difficult for us. I mean, it's, it's also like forgiveness. That's a deep practice of inclusion mm. and, um, and reconciliation, right? That a lot of letting go, a lot of releasing has to happen for, um, for us to come closer to each other, for groups to come closer to other groups, nations to other nations. And equanimity is really like there's so much wisdom in equanimity, which just sees the truth. It sees we cannot live without each other. We cannot survive if we don't figure out how to live with each other. Mm -hmm. We share this planet. We share this planet with other species. We must figure out how to include them in our way of life. Because we won't last if we don't have the bees to pollinate right. the fruit trees. We, we won't be here if we don't protect other species. So we have to include, you know, the earth, all beings, you know, even those we disagree with that we are at war with. Equanimity is this deep understanding of our interbeing with all of life. And if that's the case, then to protect ourselves means we have to protect you and, and them and <laughs> anyone we think of as other. We have to protect them too mm -hmm. if we want to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's another place in the chapter on equanimity and letting go that you you write inclusiveness or equanimity is not dogmatic mm. it, it allows us to keep an open mind um, when climbing a ladder to advance to the next rung we must let go of the rung we're standing on we need to let go of what we know now and be open to learning something new i really appreciated that way of putting uh, putting it because it for me it connected back to some of the the study and work I've done um, with a philosopher named Ken Wilbur. Mm. And he talks about development in really simple terms. He said, development is always a process of transcending and including mm. that you have to, you know, let go of an exclusive identification with something. Mm. Mm. I've seen this with my son. He's six and a half now and mm. he's no longer exclusively identified with his like baby self. Mm. but he it but it hasn't he's not it, it's still part of him it's still mm -hmm. there he he and he and i think it's really beautiful when we make space and he makes space for including it you know he can say you know just like curl up in our arms or say dada you know and it's still there like and i mm. and i imagine it's it still will be when he's you know hopefully yeah. old and yeah and so i i appreciated equanimity as like looking at inclusiveness in those terms of like, yeah, just because we, we want to leave something behind doesn't mean we have to get rid of it um, yeah. or reject it entirely as if it shouldn't be here. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really, it's about integrating who yes. we are, all of these different parts. And um, that's such a beautiful story of your, <laughs> your son. It makes me think of the story of John Kabat-Zinn, um, just really connecting with his son will when will was already mm. an adult and they just had this very tender moment of, of father and son like like they'd had when he was little mm. um, but that's a, that's such a good example of how there's space there's room for all of these different facets of ourselves and and that we can really we can really apply that in in the larger world like you know, there's a, a lot of 
um, that, you know, this trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive has become trauma-integrating. Oh, I like that. Yeah, like Thomas Hubel. Thomas Hubel mm-hmm. talks about this and others. But like, you know, we, we, we think that we have to get rid of the things that have caused us so much suffering, like our trauma. But actually, it mm. is the compost that creates the vegetables. Right. It's the right. mud that produces the lotus. And so the real work is to integrate that trauma because then we really can bring it into our lives in such a powerful way. Yes. To 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 really, it doesn't need to define us, but we don't need to, um, you know, deny it. It's it is part of who we are, and and it can become, you know, this really powerful uh, yeast. Actually, if 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 we know how to to work with it and turn it into something else. Um. So so the other the other thing I wanted to just mention because. Thomas Hubel also talks about this. You know, he talks about um, intergenerational trauma, collective trauma, and how it's like one generation when they don't heal their trauma, it's like the snow has formed a block of ice. And then the next generation, they have unhealed trauma, and that's another layer of ice. And then you get this big block of ice of all this unhealed trauma. Mm. And he says, we have everything we need to meet the problems of, of climate, of poverty, of, of, of uh, inequality and war, and they're all beneath the ice of mm. our collective trauma. If we can figure out how to melt the ice of our trauma, which, which means each of us individually, it means our families, it means our relationships, and it means our communities, our countries, you know, our histories then we'll see everything that we need is there, Mm. you know? Mm. Mm. I love that. It's such a beautiful, positive reframe also of like climate change, where it's Mm. like, I'm imagining like, the, the, it's getting hotter and the yeah. ice is melting, yeah. you know, yeah. but like not just the ice is melting, the glaciers, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah, this is also mm-hmm. an invitation mm-hmm. to melt that, mm-hmm. that generational trauma and, mm-hmm. and find the resources within us mm-hmm. so that we can um, respond accordingly. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, one example I, I love to hold up of this happening is the um, – the museum Brian Stevenson has set up in Montgomery, Alabama, um, to it's called the Lynching Memorial. Yes. That's the unofficial term, but um, and there's a beautiful museum there that really documents the history from from slavery to mass incarceration. And I mean, to me, I, I've I've been there, and it's so powerful to walk through and to see a physical structure commemorating all the lynchings that they have uh, documented that they know of historically and still more are coming out, you know, all the time. But that kind of, I mean, it's, it's very depressing. It's very sad to see that part of our history. But when we melt that ice of, of denial of, of um, turning away from what has happened, what's, what can grow from that melt, mm. you know? Mm. And when, when children walk through there and see, um, you know, what we're doing, incarcerating more people than any other developed country in the world is wrong. Those kids are going to grow up and do something <laughs> with that understanding. Right. So, um, so I just really appreciate that as a concrete example of, of love, the melting ice, and and what good you know what positive actions can come from seeing, um, and acknowledging and holding. I mean, it's held with a lot of love. Yes, uh, this history. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I certainly, f- I, f- I felt that so clearly and distinctly um, in the summer that George Floyd was murdered. Yeah, and it it was like a, a, a gigantic mirror, just like getting turned back and shining, you know, right 
in the, yeah. in my eyes and yeah. it was extraordinarily uncomfortable you know to yeah. sit with that and sit with the people who are suffering the most mm -hmm. and hear their pain really like yeah. just like be unable to kind of avoid that yeah um and for yeah for me i, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it that, that felt felt like a very softening tenderizing mm -hmm. um bringing up all the reactions and mm -hmm. kind of defenses and like but but also seeing them clearly like mm. oh shit yeah like look at how mm. i've been turning away from this and defending myself against mm. this mm. and and look at why and and, and for yeah. me it was so interesting to like why am i doing this well well yeah. part of the reason is because part of my lineage is palestinian mm. and i don't want to look at the trauma of the yeah. intergenerational trauma that i'm holding right and you know and it's like oh yeah this is like the the idea of internalized racism makes mm. a lot of sense to me mm. like there's a there's a good reason to like um, abandon your identity when it's so yeah. painful yeah. to to be with. Mm. Um, yeah. So for me, for me, on a personal level, what you're saying feels very accurate and very mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, and and that's um, a struggle that's so connected to, you know, race in the U.S. and everywhere, right? And um, and and this softening really is the key to uh, you know to the very things that we're afraid of that we fear will hurt us, but that's what what allows us to you know that kind of inclusiveness back to the meaning of equanimity that yes. kind of inclusiveness of that fear of that pain is what allows us to be inclusive of others. And their pain, right. and how they're different from us, or how we are uncomfortable with them, and so that inner movement of just being with that—that that pain—is so crucial. It really is the key. I think if if we don't learn how to do that, each of us, it will be very hard for us to to survive. Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's just so easy to 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 stay in the. Like you know, the idea of the drama triangle from yeah. from psychology to stay in that cycle of like mm. perpetrating, mm. Um, enabling, and and being victimized. It's yeah, um, yeah. You know, just on this point, I'm I'm studying with Resma Menachem, who wrote oh, My yeah. Grandmother's Hands. Yeah, yeah. So he has a, a nine month uh, program that I just completed, and I really love his approach and. And it's so complementary to mindfulness and the Dharma, I feel, um, because he also talks about really just being with the discomfort that comes up. Yes. And really feeling it. And he talks about quaking. That's actually the next, his next book coming out is called The Quaking of America. Like when we really mm. just pause, like when you just talked about your Palestinian roots. I felt a quaking in me, you know, of like, oh my, you know, this is really something that needs attention and care. Like, I could feel that sort of, the tenderness in your voice as you spoke about it. Like, you know, that's not really... Um, that's not part of our culture in many ways, right? To, to really go in that direction. But, but when we do, so much can start to open up. When we just hang out there in that discomfort in that, um, and feel all the different, you know, it, it's so much about our bodies. Mm. And this is something I feel Resma has really brought to, to the conversation about healing Racism is it it happens in our bodies. We are we are bodies first and foremost who are enacting race and racism. And so if we can just feel what it feels like when we talk about our ancestors, when we talk about, you know, how we feel about other groups of people or people who think differently from us, or just in our own in our own relationships, if we can just feel all the different sensations and all the different impressions and memories 
you know, be embodied as uncomfortable as it is. Um, that is really the, the way back to our true homes because we are a society that's really out of our center. You know, what you mentioned about social media kind of corrupting all these, you know, um, like we really can't, can't be one nation. We've lost our way. And if, if, if we can figure out how to be embodied and know what our bodies are telling us, we can find our way back to each other. Yeah, I feel that at times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm just I'm re- reflecting on um, where I live. I'm looking at my out of my neighbor's houses and and one of our neighbors um she spent her career working at the Billy Graham Training Center, which is down mm. the road. Mm-hmm. And I know so many people you know, in this area who the religious background and probably their political background as well, it's so radically different. But when I talk to people who like, it's clear that they've spent a life where they have also trained their heart. Like they've, they've had the discipline of prayer and they, like they are genuinely good people when interacting on a face-to-face level. Mm-hmm. It, it, it does bring me a lot of hope that there, there, there is a way through this if, yeah. if we could just be embodied in our human relationships rather mm-hmm. than kind of relating to each other through these, you know, preconceptions about, yeah. you know, what, who someone is because of their political ideology or, yeah. um, or their race mm-hmm. or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah. I feel both. I feel the hope and, and also definitely there's um, despair and yeah. confusion. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a appropriate emotion to feel in the face of of yeah, just how difficult things are in our world and so um I just think it's really important to make space for the despair. Um and and one of the things that I think equanimity can offer is if I could just tell a story as a way to frame this, you know, if we can, if we can accept the worst possible outcome, then um, we're kind of freed up to fully engage because we're, we're not attached to how it will turn out. And so um, it's just a story that, that Thai Thich Nhat Hanh tells in his book about um, climate change, uh, the world we are, I think, or the world we have. He tells a story of a, of a nun from Vietnam who was diagnosed with metastatic cancer and was given three months to live. And she came to Plum Village to have her last three months there fully practicing wholeheartedly. She just wanted to practice and she just gave her whole life to being in every step, to being fully there with her meals, with her connections with the people, you know. And uh, she accepted she was going to die and she's like, well, this is how I want to spend the last three months of my life. And then one of the sisters said, maybe two months into her stay, why don't we just go and get you checked? at the doctor and her cancer was in remission. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, Ty tells this story as a, as an example for us as a species, if we can accept that we may really have a terminal diagnosis, (laughs) (laughs) at least as, as the human species, we know the earth will continue, but if we can accept that, that, you know, we're on our way out uh, and really, like, face the full reality, that might wake us up enough to be fully here 
Because part of why we don't protect what we have is because we're not really alive to it. We don't really see the beauty of our world. Hmm. We're, not, we're, we're out of touch with our bodies. We're disembodied. And so we're out of touch with our world, with the planet, right. with life. And so if we, if we fully take on that these may be the last decades of humanity, how could that potentially shift what we're all capable of, what we're all um, you know, so much of our energies now are being used in ways that dissipate us. Right. But if if we really took that in, okay, this is the end. How do we want to live? So for me, that's part of the equanimity when we talk about despair is that, you know, the humanity has, you know, the world, the planet has gone through many mass extinctions. Right. Well, five. Several. This is this yeah. is the last human cause. This one is the human caused one. But you know, things will come back. Life will come back. So, right. like, you know, basically, how do we want to live if if we can see this big picture view that you know we don't get to control? We don't know. Everything comes to an end, right? Everything is impermanent. Species are impermanent. Um, it doesn't mean we are fatalistic, but we accept that, well, this, we may not survive this, but if that's the case, then how do we really want to claim and, you know, honor and live deeply in this time? And who knows what, what could happen if, if that kind of collective awakening mm. happens. Mm, mm, mm. Um, there's there's one other uh, dimension of equanimity I wanted to touch on that you that you also wrote about and it feels really relevant at the moment um, is the difference between equanimity or inclusion and indifference um, or not caring and I, I remember um, uh, Nola Way Alexander uh, in one of the mindfulness retreats online she said she was teaching on equanimity and I loved what she said she said equanimity ain't whatever. <laughs> that's <laughs> good that, it's beautiful and it, yeah. it reminded me of something my my dad said at one point he, he was like to quip occasionally and uh he said whatever is your generation's fuck you <laughs> 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 and i said whatever dad <laughs> but but i think he's right mm, you know that there's yeah. that mm. that that sense of indifference of like yeah. whatever could you talk a bit about that mm-hmm. from your experience yeah. and you know how you approach yeah. that indifference and equanimity? Yeah. yeah. You can only really have equanimity if you really care. It's it sounds strange, but if I look at people who really care <laughs> in the world, people I admire, Bishop Tutu who just passed away and Bell Hooks who just passed away. Um you know, these are people who really cared about how we are living in our world, in our times, and what allowed them to do that work without burning out and losing it was equanimity. And it's this, it's this lightness of heart. You know, Bishop Tutu was always making jokes and laughing and giggling like a little boy. You know, Bell Hooks was talking all about love mm. and you know this this ability to um, stay open in the midst of all the hardness and sharpness and ugliness and horror mm. you can only do that if you have equanimity you know in in one earlier chapter in the book i i talk about this story Tai tells where when he was a monk, he would look at the statue of the Buddha and wonder, why would this Buddha be smiling when the world is going through so much pain? How could the Buddha always have this half smile? And then he realized the Buddha could smile because the Buddha was in touch with all of life, that there is beauty and there is pain, that all of that is part of life. That there is goodness, there is deep practice, there's faith, and there is despair. And 
violence and injustice. And that the smile was about seeing, um, you know, that there is, there is something we can do. And that has everything to do with our state of mind, you know? And so, so it's, it's very much not the case that when we have equanimity, it means anything goes, uh, you know, it's up to you. I don't care. You know, that's really not what it, what equanimity is. It's this, it's a, it's, a, it's a facet of love. It's one of the aspects of true love. Right. So to really, and to really, to me, embody the sort of warmer aspects of love, whether it's that friendliness, that compassion, that joy, you need equanimity. You need this ability not to get caught by the situation or by your preferences. So it's, to me, it's this, it's this deeply honest, seeing clearly what's, what's happening and caring so much about it that you are not going to fall prey to the habits of mind and the reactivities of the heart. Mm in a way that actually will hurt the situation more. So, you know, it doesn't mean we don't feel that we're not emotional, that we don't express strong emotion, because we can do that. But then equanimity is this coming back to our center to see how do we be with that? How do we really feel the strength of the emotion, and then act from a place of wisdom. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.